so you have found yourself a victim of crypto fraud. You've obtained a judgment against the fraudster, and you've traced the fraudster's assets to an offshore exchange. So far, so good. But what about enforcement? Black and white. You're listening to Black and White, a podcast by Satya Law. I'm Wen Jian, co-founder of Satya Law, and in each episode, we'll be discussing current legal issues with a focus on finance and tech. Join us as we discover how these developments impact business, finance, and the legal industry. Today, we continue with part two of our conversation about crypto litigation and recovery with Nick Yeo and Lorencia DeBrain from Fountain Court Chambers and our very own Danny Ong. If you haven't yet listened to the previous episode, we encourage you to do so as it would certainly add meaningful context to our conversation with our guests. Nick, Lorencia and Danny, there's another important aspect of crypto litigation that I like to talk about. Maybe for the victims or claimants, this is the most crucial part of it. And I'm talking about the actual recovery or enforcement of any orders or judgment obtained. I'm mentioning this because there was another recent English High Court decision, Laws and Persons Unknown, a case where the English High Court had to deal with the question of how a victim who has obtained judgment against the wrongdoer could enforce his judgment against crypto assets that were held by the wrongdoer in an account maintained with a foreign crypto exchange. Laurentia, could you briefly explain to us what the case was about? Sure. So law was a decision decided in January of this year. And as you've noted, all of the defendants were exclusively based outside of the jurisdiction of the English court. What was significant was that none of the wrongdoing defendants participated in the proceedings in any way. So they did not file a defence. They did not respond to the litigation. And that resulted effectively in default judgments being obtained against the wrongdoing defendants in the form of proprietary injunctions. And subsequently, after judgment, a worldwide freezing order, which had been made against them, but not significantly against the cryptocurrency exchange, which was also offshore. And that pertained effectively to two wallets that had been maintained by the cryptocurrency exchange, which was Huobi, who was the named fourth defendant, who did not participate in the litigation either. As to the funds that were the subject of the worldwide freezing order, there were effectively two accounts before the court. One of the accounts, the court considered that there was overwhelming evidence that the funds credited to that account were derived by fraud from the claimant. And the claimant had pursued a proprietary claim in respect of those sums. The second bullet concerned funds which the court said it was satisfied contained the proceeds of fraud that had been inflicted on the claimant. Yes, that second account, the claimant couldn't assert a proprietary right. So he couldn't say, those are my funds. All he could say is that the person whose account that is owes me money. Now, fortunately, the English court, and I'm sure it's the same in Singapore, has power to make ancillary orders to assist with worldwide freezing orders. And one of those ancillary orders typically can be the delivery up of assets to ensure their safe preservation. But that sort of order can be made even when there isn't a proprietary claim. For example, it has to be shown that there is a risk of dissipation of those assets, notwithstanding the worldwide freezer. So here, the court agreed that in these particular circumstances, it was appropriate to make an ancillary order in respect of the funds standing to the credit of the second non-proprietary account. And that ancillary order essentially had three limbs. First, it would require the exchange to allow or to themselves transfer that crypto into fiat currency. 
Secondly, to then transfer that fiat currency into the English jurisdiction, because Hubei was an exchange based, I think, in the Seychelles. And thirdly, then to transfer that fiat currency back into the jurisdiction and pay it into court. Yes, it's quite an interesting set of orders, if you ask me, because from my perspective, there are really two key aspects to the order that was granted. One is the aspect which allowed the crypto to be converted into fiat. And one can imagine that that kind of orders could be important in other cases as well because of the relatively more stable value of fiat compared to crypto and in the context of preserving the value of assets, right? The other thing to bear in mind from the claimant's point of view is, as the judge said in law, the claimant would have to give an undertaking in damages to protect the potential defendants here. This is the non-exchange defendants. So let's assume that in fact the fraud is disproved at trial or before judgment. Then in a general circumstance, if you're going to insist that the crypto be transferred into fiat, it protects your downside, but it also exposes the potential defendants to a loss on the upside if crypto were to increase. And if a claimant is having to give an undertaking in damages in case the whole case falls over for some reason, that could potentially be quite a significant liability on the upside. So it cuts both ways. That's a fair point. But the second aspect to it, which I think is far more important, really is the part which allowed the claimant to effectively bring onshore crypto assets that were stored in accounts located in exchanges based offshore. I mean, just for the sake of discussion, maybe I can ask Danny this. In future cases where a fraud victim is seeking a freezing injunction, do you think it might make sense now for them to also seek similar orders, same as those granted in law and persons are known, to effectively allow the frozen digital assets to be brought onshore to, to begin with and additionally be converted into fiat to make sure the value is more effectively preserved? I think certainly something that can be looked into in the light of that case you know, in traditional finance with established financial institutions, we know the banks and they are regulated and that once a freezing order is granted, generally speaking, with the extreme exceptions, the institutions would not unfreeze and would comply with the freezing order to preserve the funds with a court order and certainly wouldn't deal with them, even absent a court order once they have been told that they are frozen funds. And I think likewise, the experience has been that with sophisticated and established exchanges, there is a similar sense that they will, from experience, take a similar compliant approach and cooperative approach. Certainly in the face of a court order, even if they may take the position that the court order does not, strictly speaking, bind them, they have been seen to comply and effect the freeze that has been ordered. So the large exchanges certainly has been cooperative. I think the difficulty and the real opportunity or situation where this issue does come into play is when you deal with lesser-known exchanges where you really don't know where they're incorporated, where is their management of control located, and they might well cooperate to begin with or give you the appearance in correspondence that they have notice of what you've said in terms of receipt of the stolen assets and they will preserve them. But really, can you trust them? Is there a basis to trust them? Are they large enough to want to comply? And there is a sense of insecurity that there is a risk, as Nick said, a real risk of dissipation. And they would allow either deliberately or negligently for these stolen assets that are supposed to be locked in to flow out. And I think that's the real concern that was articulated in the law's case. I mean, obviously, a unique case there. I think the key here is whether the claimant can satisfy the court, any court, that the order is justified. And I think that the fact pattern would need to be quite unique, particularly when you're dealing with established large exchanges. 
And I think in circumstances where the merits of the fraud claim are very, very strong, you've got fact pattern which establishes a clear real risk of dissipation of the crypto by the inaction or omission or negligence of the exchange or even deliberate action, then I think certainly there's a good chance of convincing, certainly from a Singapore perspective, that such an order to get the assets into court onshore is justified. Another important part of the laws and persons unknown case was the fact that Huopi, the exchange concerned, did not object to the order that was being sought. I'm wondering, Nick, do you think the outcome would have been different if the exchange had objected to the application? Would there be questions of jurisdiction or power on the part of the English courts to grant the orders against a foreign-based exchange? There may well have been. Remember, in laws, the exchange was not subject to a worldwide freezer in the first place. It's a question of enforceability. What jurisdictional gateway, as we'd call it in the UK, was there to bring Hubei before the court in the first place? And secondly, what is the risk of a defendant ignoring the order? But if the defendant turned up and objected to the order, then clearly the judge held that it was a exceptional order to make. And in these circumstances, they were satisfied that there were grounds for doing that, given that Hubei didn't attend and mount any contrary argument. But you could imagine perhaps an exchange saying, well, what's our exposure to our user here? We have a contractual right governed by whatever laws are deemed to govern the contract between the user and the exchange. And we are being told to allow a third party to withdraw these assets and transfer them. That's actually a very good point, Nick. I mean, you have a situation, therefore, that an exchange, let's assume that it's actually not subject to the jurisdiction of the relevant court and is not bound to comply with any order made by the court as a matter of technicality. Is it actually the prudent position to take to say, well, you've got to get a binding order against me from the appropriate court, which has jurisdiction over me, the exchange, rather than some foreign court? because I've got to protect myself against the exposure vis-a-vis -vis my own customer user as well for, in effect, almost voluntarily surrendering the assets as was ordered by the English court in that case. But there is always a workaround though, Nicky Lorenzo. I mean, in a situation where the exchange is either not being cooperative or is taking a jurisdictional objection, one can imagine the possibility of going to the English courts in this case and asking for the appointment of receivers to take control of assets because there's a risk of it being lost or dissipated. And it may well still be useful even though the exchange concern was not located or had presence in England because that receivership order could gain recognition, for example, if it had operations and management and control in Singapore. Equally, if that was even not possible, then in the context of the two examples, England and Singapore that I mentioned, then certainly one could come to Singapore and apply for an appointment of uh, receivers in aid of a freezing injunction as well. So I do think that there are workarounds, alternatives to the solution that was arrived at in laws. Yeah, that's a very good point, Danny. For the benefit of our listeners, the appointment of receivers, otherwise known as receivership orders, is an order placing the defendant's assets into the hands of an independent party with certain powers and duties to deal with that property. So in this case, that would have potentially looked like an independent licensed accountant being empowered to take control of the crypto assets in the Huopi account, convert them into fiat currency, and then pay the claimant, Mr. Law. 
And I know for a fact, having worked with Danny for so many years, that he's particularly fond of going for receivership orders. In many cases, which unfortunately we still can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Before we bring this podcast to a close, there is one other recent English High Court decision that I wanted to bring up for discussion. It's a case involving Nexo. I think the case is called Nexo and Sherlef. This was an interesting case to me, not so much for the legal issues, but because of the facts that led to the dispute. In that case, an account was opened on a crypto exchange in the name of one of the founders of Nexo who held the password to that account. The founders fell out and a question arose as to whether that account was the founder's own personal property or whether it was owned by the company itself. And the court held that the founder held the account for the company Nexo. Many people might ask, why didn't Nexo simply open an account in its own name, but instead open one in the founder's personal name? And I ask this because this seems to be a situation which we see a lot in such crypto cases, right, Danny? Uh, yes, I think certainly over the course of the last decade, in particular the last five years, nine out of ten times, the wallets are actually controlled and the accounts in vis-a-vis -vis the exchanges are actually open in the names of the founders or promoters, as some would call it in certain jurisdictions, and not the corporation itself. I think this stems from the fact that many exchanges originally had a very simple account opening process and onboarded individuals only rather than corporations before the AML KYC requirements evolved. And likewise, in some of the distress situations that we've seen, private wallets themselves, which hold tremendous amounts of digital assets on behalf of a platform, it could be a staking DeFi platform or an exchange, these wallets are in fact held in the name of the founders themselves, which is obviously astonishing coming from the TradFi world where regulations would never have allowed that. But thankfully, in those cases, the digital assets stayed intact. But in other cases, a case that Wunjen and I are doing, hundreds of millions of digital assets were lost by the very fact that the accounts or the wallets were held in a particular individual's name. So rather shocking. And Nick, you give a lot of advice to financial institutions on regulatory compliance investigations, disputes arising from that. The market has become more sophisticated in England and Europe, hasn't it? I think it has. Many of these exchanges, as you mentioned, not only exchanges, but any crypto intermediary, have put in place separate onboarding requirements for corporates, which presumably include sets of authorizations as to which individuals are then authorized to operate that account. So hopefully the situation that occurred in Nexo itself and those that you've come across in the past, hopefully the newer products these days and the newer platforms do have much more robust onboarding procedures. But it does raise an interesting question because we talk about these as wallets, sometimes as accounts. The crypto pedants amongst us might note that the term wallet properly used is really a bit of software that holds your private key that enables you to interact with the blockchain. However, a point that I'm very keen to emphasise and I think helps in analysing a lot of this, brings us back to the Piro case actually, is that when dealing with an exchange or possibly other intermediaries, the sort of wallet or account that you have there is not really a way to interact with the blockchain, but is really an alternative. So if you have some crypto on the blockchain, subject to a private key that you currently hold, and you transfer that crypto onto an exchange, then what's happening is that the legal ownership in the crypto usually transfers to the exchange. And that's what gave rise to those issues in Piro. And so the claimant 
in the PO sort of case, needs to show that the exchange is holding that legal title in crypto on some sort of constructive trust for them. But what the user of the exchange would prima facie have as against the exchange is a contractual right. So the user has an account with the exchange, just like you have an account with your bank. And unless the user who opens that account can show some exceptional circumstances, such as the case that Danny and I were involved with where this was argued, as to whether the exchange holds crypto transferred to it on trust for the user, unless you can show that sort of relationship, then the user only has a contractual right. In which case, if the claimant, a victim of fraud, is seeking some sort of relief against the alleged fraudsters and the alleged fraudsters have an account on an exchange, then really what the claimants should be doing in the first instance is saying that the fraudsters hold their account rights on trust for the victim. And the account rights are essentially contractual rights as against the exchange. They shouldn't be saying the exchange holds anything on trust. That's going a step too far. Absolutely, Nick. And I think the issue is particularly pronounced or has shown its significance following the outbreak of crypto winter amidst the collapses of the various exchanges, FTX and the distress situations with some other large names, where the very question of what rights do customer users actually have? Do I only have a contractual right to be paid the crypto, paid in inverted commas, in crypto that is reflected to the credit of my account? In which case, I risk standing as an unsecured creditor as part of the potential liquidation estate or the estate in distress. Or do I actually have a trust claim over the very crypto that's reflected to the credit of my account? And I think there is quite often a misconception or callousness in particularly retail users' understanding because it very much, as you quite rightly pointed out, Nick, it depends on the terms and conditions. And some terms actually say that they would hold it on trust. Some would actually say that you merely have a debt claim and the exchange is free to use the crypto that you've deposited or you hold under your account as they please, whether to stake or to onward lend or to invest. For the listeners who are wondering, what is the difference between a trust claim and a debt claim? Let me try to simplify it for you. In the context of insolvency, a trust claim allows a customer to stake their claim on the crypto assets held in their account in priority over everyone else who is owed by the exchange because the implication is that the crypto assets in the account belong to that customer. Or you could say that customer is a secured creditor. Whereas a debt claim would mean that all the assets held by the exchange would be distributed to all the creditors of the exchange equally, including the customer in question. In this case, the customer would be an unsecured creditor. Absolutely. And it makes a huge difference in the context of insolvency, whether you're treated as an unsecured creditor or effectively secured, to put it loosely. I think that's played itself out in FTX and it has played itself out in TradFi in the old days of MF Global and Lehman Brothers. But those were all in the context of a regulatory framework which prescribed for segregation and certain rights of traders and customers, none of which existed when crypto winter broke out. So very good point there, Nick. On that note, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I'm really, really delighted to have had Nick and Laurentia and Danny as guests on our podcast. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this episode. But I really hope that we can do this again. Thank you very much. It'd be lovely to do it again. Thank you. Thanks, Wenjen. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, Nick and Laurentia, for joining us. You've been listening to Black and White by Satya Law. 
Join us in the next episode for more insights on the latest developments in the legal landscape and how they impact us all. Thanks for listening.